Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is currently slow walking through the second third of Dante's masterwork comedy, Purgatorio. We are at Canto 1, lines 85 through 111. Dante has come out of hell with Virgil in tow. They have seen the gorgeous sky. They have looked toward the north. They have been confronted by an old man. Virgil replies to that confrontation, basically saying how they got there. And now that lone old man, who we now know is Cato of Utica, that lone old man is now going to reply. That's this passage, lines 85 through 111 of Canto 1. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com. It is my own Translation from the Medieval Florentine. You can read it there, print it off, drop a comment, do all those things that you would like to do on my website. (laughs) Otherwise, you can just sit back and listen to the reply from the old man to Virgil's story. Marcia was so pleasing to my eyes when I still had my existence over there, the old one then said, that I did whatever favor she sought from me. Now that she's taken up residence beyond the evil river, she can no longer compel me to do anything, as it was legislated when I got out. But if a lady from heaven moves and commands you, as you say, there's no need for flattery. It's well enough for you to ask me for the sake of that lady. Go then and see that you reclothe this one with a smooth rush. In other words, that you wash his face to get rid of all that filth. You see, it's not right with his eyes so clouded like that for him to go before the first minister who himself comes from paradise. At the lowest spot all around this little island where the waves crash against the shore, there are some rushes that flourish in the soft mud. No other plant can leaf out down there or even become sturdy enough to thrive with life against the incessant battering of those waves. When you've done that, don't come back here. The sun, which is now beginning to rise, will show you an easier path up the mountain. And just like that, he disappeared. I then stood up without saying a word and pulled up as close as I could to my leader, Virgil, drawing my eyes toward him. We seem to have had a grand change of tone. Virgil's flattery didn't really get him anywhere, although the old man, Cato of Utica, does seem kinder in this passage. In the first passage, when he speaks, he seems, I don't want to say belligerent, but he certainly seems as a warning, guarding figure. Now he seems much more moved to help the pilgrim and Virgil figure out how to continue on in Purgatorio. And by the way, we can then start to figure out how to continue on in Purgatorio. This is a bit of a complicated passage. I'm going to break it into lots of little bits so that we can see what's going on. We'll start right up at the top. Marcia was so pleasing to my eyes, Cato says, when I still had my existence over there. There's a huge question. We'll get to it in a minute. What is that over there? That I did whatever favor she sought from me. 
There are a lot of commentators who say that Virgil made a mistake. Remember, Virgil brought up Marcia and said, oh, she still prays for you down there in limbo. And if you'll let us go on, I'll mention you when I get back to her. Remember all of that bit that went on? A lot of commentators say, ah, Virgil, he got caught in a gaffe. He just made a terrible mistake by mentioning Marsha, one of the damned, here in purgatory, or by thinking somehow that Marsha would move Cato in some way. I don't think Virgil's made a mistake. Here's what I think. One, I think that Virgil may be following up on Beatrice's lead. Beatrice, back in Inferno 2, was the one who flattered Virgil. So if Beatrice flattered Virgil, it stands to reason that Virgil thinks he can flatter Cato. I mean, flattery must work on this side of hell in the afterlife. Fair enough. But also, I think Virgil's bringing up of Marcia is a grand moment of Virgil's own humanness. Now, I realize Virgil is disembodied, he's a shade, but he's still human. By bringing this up, we see a bit of Virgil's uncomfortableness here. We see him trying out various strategies. We see him working to try to get to where he needs to be. For me, this makes Virgil human, and this is what's kind of amazing for me. Even as Virgil will start to change over the course of Purgatorio, and he will come to know much more than he ought, for example, that there are seven realms of Purgatory, even though he will change and know more, Dante keeps his humanness intact, and I would point to this moment of mentioning Marcia as a moment in which Virgil really is a human. Humans struggle to make meaning. Humans struggle to get through their challenges. Virgil, too. And that Virgil has to... (laughs) Virgil. That Virgil has to gives me great comfort. The old man Cato goes on. Now that she's taken up residence beyond the evil river, she can no longer compel me to do anything as it was so legislated when I got out. I'm going to stop there and we're going to have two points on those three lines that terse it. It's that line as it was so legislated when I got out. That's a reference most commentators take to the harrowing of hell, the moment in which Jesus descended into hell and pulled out what Christians call the Old Testament saints. Virgil has already made reference to this harrowing more than once in Inferno. Virgil, however, never made any mention of anyone else except the, as I called them, Old Testament saints getting out and the earthquake that apparently shook hell when Jesus descended into it. This is all quite interesting. And it's quite interesting because it's a bit back to that thing that Cato first said. Marcia was so pleasing to my eyes when I still had my existence over there. Did he mean in this life or did he mean in limbo? Was Cato in limbo? If Cato was in limbo, did Virgil and Cato overlap? Well, in terms of their dating, they did. Cato died while Virgil was alive and then Virgil died And then the harrowing of hell happened, so they would have overlapped in limbo. Is that how Virgil knows that Cato is Cato? Because they knew each other back in the old country of limbo? Is is that how they know? It's so intriguing, but it certainly seems to indicate that Cato got out. This is the moment that Pietro 
Dante points to to say that Cato is saved. It's this line as it was legislated when I got out. Pietro de Dante points to this to say, hey, Cato was part of the harrowing of hell. He was part of those saved from hell. And this is why Pietro de Dante is not uncomfortable with Cato's redemption as so many other early commentators are. And in fact, Cato deflates Virgil's flattery a bit with that reference to the evil river, which is Archeron, where Charon boats the people across and into hell. Remember, Virgil had said, Minos doesn't bind me as if that means something. Well, Cato seems to take the air out of that right here. He seems to say, well, fine, Minos doesn't bind you, but you know what? You still went across on Charon's boat. You still ended up in hell, old man. So don't try to play that legalese with me. She's beyond the evil river. But there's another bit here that I just want to point out for you in these three lines, this tercet. It's still sitting in that last line, as it was so legislated when I got out. It's the construction there. Que fatafu. This is not a Florentine construction. E.G. Parodi, the Dantist uh, in the early 20th century, in 1912, was the first to point out that que fatafu is just a pure Latinism. It's not really Florentine, and it is not the passive of the Florentine verb fare, to, to do or to make. It's not the passive of that verb. Instead, it's got all this Latinate structure behind it. And if we translated this just absolutely word for word, we'd come out with something like, according to the law made when I came forth. That emphasis on the law being made and that Latinism calls us back to an edict from heaven. And remember, I've been going on and on about how Virgil and Cato seem to be talking about laws and legalism. Well, there may be a bit of Christian theology running behind this. In the Christian story, what the Jews refer to as the law, Torah, and the entire Old Testament, the Tanakh, is actually the quote-unquote Old Covenant. And Christians believe it was replaced by the New Covenant. So Virgil and Cato are speaking Old Covenant legalisms to each other. Paul defines the Old Covenant as the law. St. Paul defines the Old Covenant as the law and the New Covenant as grace. And so Virgil and Cato seem to be sitting on a line about the Old Covenant here, expressed in this strange and legalistic Latinism, ke fatafu. Moving on in the passage, but if a lady from heaven comes and commands you, Cato says, as you say, there's no need for flattery. It's well enough for you to ask me for the sake of that lady. Go then and see that you reclothe this one with a smooth rush. In other words, that you wash his face to get rid of all the filth. You see, it's not right with his eyes, so clouded like that, for him to come before the first minister who himself comes from paradise. All right, let's say several things about these nine lines. To start off, let's say that Cato is addressing all of this to Virgil, not to Dante. So Cato accepts 
Virgil's role. He may not accept the flattery that Virgil gives him, but clearly Cato, addressing this to Virgil, accepts that Virgil is the guy. That's a strange little bit, right? Wouldn't we kind of expect in the redeemed part of the afterlife that Cato would address his words to Dante? He doesn't. He talks to Virgil, thus cueing us in that Virgil is still the guide. He says that Virgil has to go reclothe this one, Dante, doesn't even really know who it is, Dante, this one, with a smooth rush. Way back in the early 19th century, Palmaceo came up with the idea that this smooth rush is a reference back to the suicides in Inferno 13. Let me explain this. What uh, Cato says is junco schietto, the smooth rush, a smooth reed. And in the wood of the suicides, their limbs are seen as non rami schietti. It's that same word, schietti, schietto, that's being used, not straight branches, crooked branches, not straightened out branches that the suicides are. And again, we see a link here with something from Inferno. And again, a link specifically back to the wood of the suicides, leading us once again, perhaps to posit that suicide was the besetting sin of the pilgrim when he began his journey. But notice also that Cato says that you have to reclothe this one with a smooth rush. A lot of commentators say this is because Dante took off his belt for Garion. Remember, as they're standing before the eighth circle of hell, the, the Malabolgia circle, and they're up on top of that cliff where the usurers are sitting on the edge, and Dante takes off his belt, and Virgil uses it to throw over the edge and call Garion up. A lot of commentators say that basically Dante needs to be reclothed because he has partially disrobed. I'm not sure that I buy that. I'm not sure that I think taking off a belt is disrobing. And I'm particularly not sure that this rush is part of that belt problem. It could be. You could argue that what has happened is that Dante allegorically has loosened his belt. That's one step toward his redemption and now needs to have his face washed. That's a second step toward redemption and grace. For me... What's happening here is a very common motif in Pauline, St. Paul, in Pauline theology of putting on the new man. In Ephesians 4 and in Ephesians 6, Paul makes a big deal about putting on the new man. And then in Ephesians 6, Paul goes through this whole thing, the breastplate of righteousness. He puts on the whole armor of the new man. And I think that there's a way that this is echoing that you have to be reclothed to become a new man in Christian theology. And I think that's part of it here. But you should note that Cato does say, Reclothe. He doesn't say, go then and see that you clothe this one. He seems to say, do it again. Thus, maybe going back to the belt, or again, maybe this notion of regeneration, uh, new birth, something like that. But there's something very human in this passage, and I, I want to talk about it for a minute. Cato said, there's no need for flattery. Just Tell me about the lady who sent you, and that'll do it. 
This is what I find amazing. The flattery in the passage before that Virgil uses is very rhetorical. It's very classical. It's very part of a common grammatical strategy of argumentation. There are all kinds of fancy labels for this, but let's just say it's part of the toolbox of rhetoric to use flattery. And what Cato is essentially saying, if I had to bring it up to the postmodern moment and out of its medieval context, Cato's essentially saying, your flattery doesn't save you, your story does. Just sit on that for a minute. Let me get really personal for a second. Years ago, when I first came out, I came out of a straight heterosexual marriage and came out kind of uh, in my early 30s. And it was really tough. And I went to group therapy for a while. And the group therapy was amazing. It was this group therapy of all gay men. I was a brand new gay man. It was really eye-opening. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done to sit in this group. You know, I'd been in it for several weeks and I'd been trying to dance around who I was and dance around that I wasn't uncomfortable, which I was, and all this kind of stuff. And at one point, I set into a story. In the middle of my story, the therapist interrupted me. (laughs) Probably not a great therapeutic strategy, but okay. The therapist interrupted me and said, you know, maybe you should try it without all your fancy words. And it really broke me. It took the wind out of my sails. I thought, oh my gosh, what I have are fancy words. You know, I mean, I, I, I got my graduate school degrees and my academic positions and what I got is fancy words. Don't take those away from me. Then what am I going to be left with? Well, This is the answer right here in the passage. You're left with your story. Virgil's story is that a lady came and directed him. Beatrice, well, and Lucy, and, well, maybe the Virgin Mary. He's got his story, and Cato says, that's enough. That story's it. You don't have to engage in crazy rhetorical strategies to get beyond me. I just find this so human, so real, so of the moment, something that we can all take away from this passage. One more thing in the passage that I just read, Uh, Cato says it's not right with his eyes, with Dante's eyes so clouded like that for him to go before the first minister who himself comes from paradise. Notice that Cato is not then the first minister. Someone's coming. They are. We read the first two cantos. We know an angel is on the way. Someone's coming who is the first minister and comes from paradise. So this is the moment in which some people say Cato is not redeemed, that he is going to hang out here forever. And they point to this by saying he's not actually the first minister of Purgatorio. He's just a guy who's on the shore making sure everybody knows which way to go. I don't buy this because nobody, except for the angels, nobody in purgatory comes from paradise. Dante certainly doesn't have any of the souls up and down the mountain originating in paradise and arriving on the mountain. So I would tell you that 
I'm not sure I buy this idea that this is why we know Cato is not saved. What we can say is that Cato clearly sees his position as less important than the angelic ministers that are coming. And that term, first minister, it's very legal. It's very courtly, first minister. You know, it's like in the British, I'm first in the British system, I'm first desk and I'm second desk. It's like that. It has a very bureaucratic ring to it, a very courtly ring to it. Cato is not that. He's instead something else. What? Well, we might have to wait till the end of the second canto to fully answer that question. Let's just go on in this passage. At the lowest spot all around this little island, Cato continues, where the waves crash against the shore, there are some rushes that flourish in the soft mud. No other plant can leaf out down there, or even become sturdy enough to thrive with life against the incessant battering of the waves. I just want to stop here and talk about these rushes that are growing in this soft mud. They're being bashed about by the waves, and yet they're thriving there. This is a key point to what is ahead of us in Purgatorio. It is, and (laughs) you can also take this away as a life lesson, it is that pliancy is the key to survival and maybe the key to redemption. That being able to bend with the waves, being able to grow even in incessant waves is part of the key strategy we would say of survival. Dante might say of redemption and we might say of redemption even without giving it a theological gloss. And believe me, pliancy is what is called for ahead of us all across Purgatorio. Pliancy about what we think, pliancy about our theology, pliancy about where the fence lies. (laughs) Wait till we get to the top. Pliancy about who we think Beatrice is. Pliancy is what's called for. It is going to constantly be tested, and we are going to be bashed about in Purgatorio by all kinds of theological problems, by all kinds of new information, by a changing tenor of the poem itself. And then when Beatrice arrives, I've already let you know this, when Beatrice arrives, (laughs) basically she invalidates Inferno and all of Purgatorio up until her appearance. Oh, just wait. (laughs) Talk about pliancy. Wait a minute. We spent a long time getting here, and now you're telling me that uh, all of that is really just a sideshow to this, which is the real moment? Oh, my gosh. That's a lot of sideshow. Years worth, in fact. (laughs) Cantos and cantos worth, in fact. Pliancy is called for. The ability to be adaptive, to watch how the waves (laughs) bash and not be threatened by them, but to grow strong. It is the key virtue of reading Purgatorio and will become part of the pilgrim's key virtue as he ascends the mountain. Now the last six lines of this passage. Cato finishes up. When you've done that, don't come back here. The sun, which is now beginning to rise, will show you an easier path. And just like that, he disappeared. I then stood up without saying a word and pulled up as close as I could to my leader, Virgil, drawing my eyes toward him. Let's talk about a couple things in this passage first. Let's talk about the don't come back here. A lot of commentators have seen this 
as a reference to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 12, when the Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Let me tell you the whole story. So Jesus is born in the stable. The Magi set out from the east following the star they get to Herod's court to the to the official bureaucratic entity that oversees Bethlehem they tell Herod you know hey a king's been born we've seen this Herod gets very upset scared not quite sure what to do so Herod says go find it and come back here and tell me and then they do go find the infant Jesus they present their gifts gold frankincense and myrrh and being warned off in a dream not to come back here. Thus, they, uh, this passage is linked to that. And the idea here is that Cato is uh, kind of, well, he wouldn't be the angel, but he's being linked somehow to the wise men or maybe because we then have to say Virgil and Dante are the magi, which seems a little weird, but maybe let's give it. They are. Then Cato is this angelic presence, but he just said he wasn't a first minister who we know is an angel, but okay. Cato is this angelic presence in the dream that warns them off. It's a little complicated, and the reference may be a little rough, and we have to say that after 700 years of commentary, this common trope that, ah, this is Matthew 2.12, it may be a little ragged and not exactly fit, but I wanted to tell you about it because it is the common gloss on don't come back here. Why would Cato say that? Why would he say don't come back to this spot? Well, what's up there? Common gloss is to cite the gospel. It's a little ragged and it doesn't exactly fit, but it may be right. Notice that the sun is just beginning to rise. This seems very important for a couple of reasons. If you go back to Inferno Canto 1, when Dante comes out of that wood and starts to climb that hill where the beasts are, ultimately stop him and push him back, the sun is rising over that hill. Here in Canto 1 of Purgatorio, the sun is rising again, but there is a big difference. This is Easter morning of the year 1300. It is Easter Sunday morning, and the sun is coming up. As a Christian poem, this should cue you to every everything you need to know about the resurrection, about seeing Cato and not quite knowing who he is, about the garden tomb with Jesus. All those references are thick and aplenty in this passage because here we have it. The sun is rising on Easter morning. The last time the sun came up over a mountain, the poor pilgrim fell back down into the dark wood. This time, very different things will take place. And here's another thing. This is the first time we know it's a mountain. <laughs> this is the first time we recognize that there's a mountain right there. It's sitting right behind us. But it hasn't actually been mentioned until now. Notice how late in the game we come upon Mount Purgatorio. And again, I feel that I've done you a bit of a disservice in this podcast by constantly talking about the mountain and the way up and all this stuff because you wouldn't know it until you get to the very end of Cato's second speech. Now you know what's ahead. Now you know that the path leads up that thing, this giant, giant thing that is apparently right behind us.
the pilgrim stands up. At the end of our passage, I stood up without saying a word and pulled up as close as I could to my leader, Virgil, drawing my eyes toward him. You notice that Dante has been kneeling since line 51 when Virgil pushed him down. This whole time, through this whole conversation, Dante has been kneeling there in front of Cato. And now he finally stands up and pulls close to Virgil. This is a key difference to what happens in Inferno 1 when he falls back down that hill after the beasts stop him. This time, instead of being rudderless, and I picture him rolling down the hill, but I doubt it. Anyway, running down the hill and being rudderless and directionless and going backwards, instead of moving at all, he pulls closer to Virgil, to his guide. Cato has established that Virgil is indeed the guide here. Cato has bought Virgil's story and validated it. And now the pilgrim stands up and pulls closer to Virgil. We should see this as a change in the pilgrim's attitude, in the change of how the sun comes up and what happens next, in a change in the overall tenor of Virgil and Dante's relationship. They're tighter, to say the least. And a change in the poem itself, as the pilgrim looks for help from Virgil. Complicated passages, right? So in order to do this one more time, let's read the whole thing. Let's read the whole dialogue. I'm going to go all the way back to line 28 of Cato 1. And let's read the whole Cato-Virgil-Cato exchange so we hear it all happening to us. So starting at line 28 and running out through the back of this passage. As I made my gaze turn away from those stars and turned myself a bit toward the opposite pole where the Big Dipper had already set, I saw close by me a single lone old man. His whole appearance deserves so much respect that no son could have given his own father more. He sported a long beard that was dappled with white, similar in color to what was on top of his head. It all fell onto his chest in double strands. The rays of light from those four blessed stars bestowed such an illumination on his face that it looked to me as if he were basking in the sun. Who are you, who've come up along the dark stream to have then made your escape from the eternal prison, he said, shaking his honored locks. Who'd you have for a guide, and what'd you have for a lantern that lets you exit from the deep dark night that always shrouds Hell's Valley in blackness? Have the laws of the abyss been abrogated somehow, or has a new directive been issued in heaven so that you, the damned, may now come to my seaside banks. At that point, my master Virgil reached out for me with words, with his hands, with gestures even. He made me show obeisance with my knee and my brow. Then he answered the old man, I didn't come under my own steam. A lady descended from heaven. Because of her prayers, I gave this man my company as his aid. But if you want to know a more complete explanation of our condition, such as it really is, I'm certainly not the one to deny you what you wish. This man hasn't seen his last sunset, although his folly brought him pretty close to it, so close that there was very little time left for him to turn back. As I said, I was given a mandate to go to his aid. There was literally no other way except this one that I've pressed him onto. I've shown him all the enraged peoples, and now I intend to show him those spirits who are purified under your jurisdiction." 
How I brought him here? That would take a long time to tell. A great power from way up above has come down to help me lead him to the spot where he can see and hear you. May it please you now to hail his arrival. He goes in search of freedom, which is so very precious, as he who has given up his life for it well knows. You know what I'm talking about, because freedom didn't make your death so bitter back in Utica, where you left the garment that will shine on that glorious last day. We haven't broken any of the eternal edicts, for he's alive. Minus doesn't mind me. You see, I'm from that circle where your Marcia, with pure eyes, prays that you, O sacred breast, still hold her as your own. Because of her love for you, I pray your favor. Let us go on through your seven realms. I'll report back word of you to her, if you permit yourself to be mentioned way down there below. Marcia was so pleasing to my eyes when I still had my existence over there, the old one then said that I did whatever favor she sought from me. Now that she's taken up residence beyond the evil river, she can no longer compel me to do anything as it was so legislated when I got out. But if a lady from heaven moves and commands you, as you say, there's no need for flattery. It's well enough for you to ask me for the sake of that lady. Go then and see that you reclothe this one with a smooth rush. In other words, that you wash his face to get rid of all that filth. You see, it's not right with his eyes so clouded like that for him to go before the first minister who himself comes from paradise. At the lowest spot all around this little island where the waves crash against the shore, there's some rushes that flourish in the soft mud. No other plant can leaf out down there or even become sturdy enough to thrive with life against the incessant battering of those waves. When you've done that, don't come back here. The sun, which is just now beginning to rise, will show you an easier path up the mountain. And just like that, he disappeared. I then stood up without saying a word and pulled up as close as I could to my leader, Virgil, drawing my eyes toward him. Well, that was a lot to say in this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. There's so much about these opening conversations that's so astounding. It just lets us know the depth and breadth of what's ahead of us in Purgatorio. There's a reason people stop after Inferno, because it gets harder. So we're up for it, right? We're up for this challenge. We're going to do it together. Thank you for being with me on this walk. Again, as I always say, if you wouldn't mind reading or even writing a review of this podcast, that would be great. It is unsupported, and that is the only way you can support it. And I very much appreciate it when you take the time to do that. Thank you. And thank you mostly just for being on the walk with me. It's kind of amazing, right? Pliancy, telling your story. There's so much to take away from this and so much to ferret out of each and every passage. We're going to do our best. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.